phone logs, flight records, poisoners and more. Yes, it's the inevitable hot take look at the latest revelations about the attempt to murder Alexei Navalny. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. So, I found myself with some unexpected extra time on my hands today. Shout out to you, Philip. And some unexpectedly rich meat to discuss. So, here is a short podcast on the latest Navalny plot twists. By the way, I should mention that my notes for this are essentially, well, literally, four bullet points on a post-it note. So, my apologies if it comes across as unusually incoherent. But, here goes. First of all, though, let me start with a very quick summary of what's been going on for anyone who's been locked away from media and social media in the last day or so. Yesterday, 14th of December, the citizen journalist investigative outfit Bellingcat, I don't really know what we call it these days, in cooperation with the Russian investigative journalism outfit The Insider, dropped a bombshell report using imagination, persistence, and the array of should-be confidential data on everything from phone calls to flight records that you can actually get hold of in Russia for depressingly small sums of money. Oh, and by the way, there's an interesting moral point here on the propriety of paying for illegal information, but in the cause of investigating a crime. We live in an excitingly complex world these days. Anyway, they used all this to identify a team of eight FSB, Federal Security Service, officers who had been following Navalny, in effect, since 2017, who had specialist medical or chemical weapons warfare experience, who had connections with research centres working on poisons, and three officers of whom are identified in Tomsk, close to Navalny's hotel, when he was poisoned. I will leave links to the very, very detailed Bellingcat uh, Insider report in the programme notes, as well as to Novalny's own video. As ever, wonderfully fluent and impressively entertaining in its own way, um, in which he runs through the whole case. And don't worry, there are subtitles. So, what are the points which really I'd want to draw from this case? Well, first of all, it's about new rules. Now, in his own video... Navalny sort of notes that this team started following him. And when we talk about following him, we mean to pretty much every city he travelled, there would be a team. They would be arriving, they'd be going there on a separate plane or a separate train. They'd arrive perhaps just before he did. But wherever he went, they knew and they were heading there. Anyway, this really started in 2017. And he links it to the fact that it happened when he said he would be challenging Putin for the presidency. Now, I'm not entirely sure, because if nothing else, it wouldn't take them three years to find an opportunity to poison him. By all accounts, they broke into his hotel room when he and his team were away and sprayed it on who knows quite what. 
Rather, I suspect that this was precisely a contingency operation, that there was the possibility that they would want to do something to him, and therefore they were ready for it, and it was only in 2020 in which it was triggered. So I don't think it was about the presidency, because that was old news. Maybe it was his smart voting tactical campaign, which we know is definitely concerning the Kremlin. This attempt to basically try and create uh, coalitions of interest to vote for whoever is most likely to unseat the ruling United Russia Party candidate. So it could be that. But I can't help feeling that, and this is something I I talked about in 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 a piece I wrote for the Moscow Times, that in fact it represents a general and exceedingly alarming shift to a, a new set of rules of engagement, shall we say, for the Kremlin. Because it fits in. This year, it's not just been about hunkering down because of COVID. That, I'm sure, has contributed to a sense of being genuinely beleaguered by the old men in the Kremlin. A sense that they do face threats from their own country, their own country folk. We've seen it in the constitutional changes. At first, there was talk that maybe this was about some kind of clever way in which Putin could create some route away from the direct presidency. But no, he ended up, after apparently toying with the idea, doubling down on the crudest, most clumsy and heavy-handed approach of just simply um, zeroing out his constitutional term limits. We saw this in the irregularities, which you know, I hope we all appreciate is the usual euphemism for outright cheating in both the constitutional vote and also this autumn's regional elections, which is precisely what Navalny had been stumping and organising for when he was poisoned. We see this in extraordinary draconian new foreign agent rules that are passing through um, the parliamentary process at the moment, which really would make it almost impossible to avoid being called and identified as a foreign agent. If you're at all involved in politics, if you ever really talk to a foreign journalist or indeed a foreigner of any kind, let alone if one of them buys you a coffee. We see this in the crackdown on regional leaders, which again has happened at a much, much uh, stronger rate than we've seen in the past. I mean, what the protests that continue in Khabarovsk because of the removal of the local governor, Furgal, is only just one part of that story. And in some ways, we also see this with the response to what's happening in Belarus. They had options. They could have gone for something more imaginative. They ended up just going back for, well, we'll just have to back Lukashenko, back the dictator against the public, if in doubt. So my, my fear... And increasingly, I feel that my fear is is maybe justified, is that this represents a general shift. And I'll come back to that, I think, at at the end. And the second broad point, which is obviously a corollary of that, is that this is absolutely a state hit. When it first happened, I will confess, um, I hold my hand up that sometimes we don't know things. And my sense was, I honestly didn't know if it was a state hit or not, given that, you know, as Navalny himself has often said, you know, he, he feels that he is more dangerous to the regime. He thinks the Kremlin regards him as more dangerous, dead than alive. Because let's be f- fair about this. If you are a rich, powerful Russian, pretty much that means, by definition, you will have connections within the realms of criminality and also the security apparatus. Killing someone, even getting hold of Novichok, is not actually beyond the realms of possibility. So it was possible that it was some other grandee, because that's what we've seen in the past. 
people being killed by not the Kremlin, but by people who were sure that they could have retrospectively the Kremlin's approval or at least acceptance. However, the first counterindication was precisely the fact that there was not even the faintest pretense of an investigation. I mean, if one compares this, for example, with the assassination of Boris Nemtsov in 2015, which again, I'll probably come back to, then there was a real investigation. And in fact, the current uh, Prosecutor General, Krasnov, who was a very, very able and by all accounts, insofar as you can be within this system, honest prosecutor, was put on the case. When he realised, or when he discovered the Chechen connection, the extent to which this was basically came down to Ramzan Kadyrov, the warlord of Chechnya, that's a point when he was removed from the case, and a rather more, shall we say, uh, politically savvy, you know, I, someone who would give the right uh, result, more politically savvy investigator was put in his place. But nonetheless, the point is, at least they started an investigation before they realised that it was going somewhere they didn't want to follow. This time, we have nothing of that. The second and perhaps rather more significant warning sign was when we had from the Germans and other laboratories news that this was not simply Novichok, it was a new variety of Novichok, a new strain. Now look, if you have access to a high-grade commercial laboratory, you can, I'm afraid, make Novichok. There are risks, but it is possible. However, I don't believe for a minute that on the black market there's anyone actually experimenting with new strains of Novichok. So again, this made it sound like it had to have come from a state poison laboratory. And now we have the conclusions of of this investigation, which really are quite, quite conclusive, I would suggest. I mean, either it's a result of a massive, comprehensive and truly sophisticated act of forgery, in which case one will presume that the Russians will very, very quickly be able to demonstrate that that's the case. I'm not holding my breath, though. Or we have to say that this has indeed proven that there was a specialist team, a team with unusually, uh, shall we say, uh, esoteric skills, which had been on Navalny's tail and happened to be there when he was poisoned. This could not have been, in my opinion, a maverick operation. To be able to access new strains of Novichok, to be able to deploy this kind of a team, this kind of an operation for three years, is not something that you can do without having a sign-off from the top of the Federal Security Service. And FSB Director Bortnikov would not, in my opinion, have done this without sign-off from the political leadership, i.e. Putin. Bortnikov is not someone who, in a way, creates his own path. He walks down the roads he's pointed. But the interesting thing is, let's just dwell again on the, the nature of that team. As I said, It was a a mix of medical doctors, of people with uh, chemical weapons and warfare experience. This is not the kind of person you have on a regular surveillance operation. These are people who worked for the third service of the FSB, which is its scientific and technical service. On the whole, these are not people who are seen out, out in the field. The people one would usually expect, and indeed who are generally the ones watching Navalny, are people from the Second Service, which has a quite extraordinarily uh, jaw-breaking title. It's the Service for the Protection of the Constitutional System and the Fight Against Terrorism. And basically, this is the descendant of the uh, old KGB's political investigation, political control directorate. Now, within that, there is something called the Operational Investigation Directorate, OSU. 
Osu are the people who have the very specialist skills of shadowing and surveillance. These are the people who actually are watching Navalny at the same time. These are the people who film him in his meetings. These are the people who, for example, have told the poisoners where he was flying next, on what plane, and where he was going to be staying. These are the people who will have been weaving an unseen network of surveillance operations around Navalny. They clearly had a relationship with the Poisoner team, because as I said, the, the Poisoners otherwise would probably not have known where to go and when. But they weren't actually of the team. So one cannot get away from the fact that this was a very specialist team, which must have been put together for a specialist purpose. But it's also worth mentioning the Second Service people. They are also likely to have been the... Uh, the operators who first came to the scene, there was a sort of notorious point where you had FSB officers who basically took over the offices of the chief doctor in the Omsk hospital. Now, although members of the poisoning team later went to Omsk, the third service doesn't have a kind of nationwide network of, of operators. It would have been from the local city office for countering terrorism and political extremism of the second section who would have been involved. Back in October, I, I noted in, in the Moscow Times the rather undignified retirement of General Sergei Smirnov, who had been first deputy director of the FSB. And also, specifically, he had been overseer of the Second Service. Now, look, he was 70 years old, which is the technical age for final retirement. Uh, he may well indeed have had a stroke. But still, it was really quite striking then how there was no fanfare. There was an almost offensive lack of any ceremony in his retirement. And perhaps equally important, there was no retirement sinecure. No little position as a, sorry, on, on some inspector board, inspectorate board or similar. Now, I wondered then if this may have had some connection with the Navalny case, since the Second Service generally takes point on political opposition cases. So Smirnov may have been the first, I hesitate to say scalp, but partial scalp, shall we say, of the Navalny case. Now, though, what we have is evidence that the poisoners were part of a unit which actually worked under the umbrella of the Federal Security Services Criminalistics Institute. Now, most of what the Institute does, let's be absolutely clear, is real forensic science, usually deployed in the support of real cases. The FSB, for all that it is a political security agency, is also a genuine counterterrorism, law enforcement and so forth one. But at the same time, there has been, for, for some time now, frankly, Rumours that it's also a home for less laudable capabilities, from staging crime scenes and cleaning away evidence, to, well, poisoning. The head of the institute is General Kirill Vasilyev, who is himself, it's worth noting, a chemical engineer. And he reports to Major General Vladimir Bogdanov, who is the deputy head of the Third Service. So this is actually a pretty short chain of command. Deputy head of the Third Service to the head of the Third Service all the way, at that point, to head of the FSB, Bornikov. So the question is, are there going to be more consequences for the FSB in general, and the Third Service in particular? Not so much for the failed assassination. Firstly, we would have seen that by now. But also, in fairness, 
that was as much as anything, or more than anything else, bad luck. If, there are so many ifs here, if the pilot had not detoured the plane to Omsk as soon as it was clear they had a serious medical incident on their hands, if the first responders right actually on the tarmac at Omsk could not realise that this looked like nerve agent or nerve poisoning of some kind and injected him with atropine. And if a German NGO had not offered a casualty evacuation and medical treatment and the German government had taken up this case, you know, all of these, if it hadn't been for those, if the pilot had flown on thinking best just get to Moscow as quickly as possible, if the local paramedics had not really had a clue what they were dealing with, then who knows quite what would have happened. Well, actually, no, what would have happened is he would have died. So the actual failure, I don't think, is something that was counted against anyone. But what about the revelation? Well, that's an interesting matter. I mean, for example, we didn't see anything particularly sort of following after the revelation of the involvement of the military intelligence, GRU, in the attempted assassination of Sergei Skripal in the UK. In fairness, though, I think the Russians were expecting that the agents in question would be unmasked. Let's be honest, in the modern panopticon age, in the age of ubiquitous CCTV cameras, of video cameras in airports, of biometric visas and so forth, the days when you can just give your agent a new set of documents and they think they can get away with it are pretty much gone. And that's, I think, why they're used as their point agents to Spetsnaz special forces, one, one a, a doctor, one, one an action man. Because in a way, they knew that this was a one-off mission, that once these had done this, they would be compromised and so best just use people who you can then just send back to their unit and, and be done. So... They might have been surprised how quickly these guys were, were outed. They might have been surprised by the fact that they were outed again by Bellingcat. But that they were going to be outed, I think they knew. That's not necessarily the case for something like this, which is, after all, intended to be a purely domestic operation, and one in which the agents certainly tried to adopt higher levels of operational security, using burner phones, for example, even if, unfortunately for them, one of them accidentally switched his phone on a couple of times and was pinged by cell towers and thus located. So they may well have had more of a hope that although there will be lots of suspicion, there wouldn't be this kind of forensic quality information available about the plot. So we'll have to see. Now, the thing is, scapegoating, even without an admission of guilt, even the kind of, shall I say, implicit scapegoating that may have been taking place with, in, in, in Smirnov's case, can be counterproductive. And especially so if this is, after all, going to be the new way of Russian politics, to put it bluntly, if you might well be looking for some poisonings again in the future. If you start cracking down on the guys who actually carry out your missions and their bosses, then there comes a point when people will be disinclined to actually do so. Certainly they, they won't be showing any kind of particular initiative, and the Putin system depends on this initiative from below often. So we'll have to wait and see. Instead, what we may well see is a crackdown precisely on the sort of black and grey markets of confidential data. Though, given that essentially this is all being leaked by corrupt security officers, 
I suspect that it's going to be very difficult. And anyway, the horse will probably have long since bolted. I mean, the databases are out there. Yes, even if you can stop new material being passed to them, nonetheless, all the old stuff is out there for, and, and for sale. We might well see, unfortunately, a crackdown on the genuine and really very inspiring investigative outfits that we see inside Russia, of which I mean, the insider is only one. I mean, quite recently, after all, they have been very active. We've had claims about, for example, an illegitimate daughter of Putin's, which is very much crossing one of the long understood red lines of this system. Putin and his personal life is out of bounds. But nonetheless, they went there. We've also actually seen releases about Putin's ex-son-in-law and various financial shenanigans around that. So this is in some ways getting increasingly uh, aggressive coming from the investigative outfits. I would not be surprised if that is met with increasing aggression from the other side. So what are we going to see? Well, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see if we have anything happen to suggest that the Kremlin wants to distance itself from its poisoners. I mean, this is going to be a crucial thing, and I suspect the answer is no. It could, if it wanted, signal without admitting guilt, but it could signal to those who know what is going on, or at least that it's decided that it wants to now retrospectively distance itself from them. We could see some more retirements or sackings or whatever. If we do not, then that in itself will be a signal. That will be a signal that says basically, yes, we did it. Get used to that idea. These are the new rules of the game. As I said, it is new. To return to my earlier point, this, is, this has not in the past been a regime which killed, except in its terms or its belief, as a last resort and to people who it genuinely regarded as traitors. This was largely outside the country. If we look at the two highest profile assassinations inside the country under Putin, the journalist Anna Politkovskaya in 2008 and politician opposition leader Boris Nemtsov in 2015. I mean, in both those cases, that seems to have been, frankly, a Kadyrov killing rather than a Putin killing. And in both cases, the regime seems to have been uncomfortable with it. If one looks at the killings abroad, you know, we're talking about people like Alexander Litvinenko in London, various Chechens across Europe, quite frankly, and beyond, as well as the attempt against Sergei Skripal. I mean, in each case, these are people who clearly were regarded as traitors, as apostates. Now, up to this point, Navalny has been on the right side of that line. Navalny has been seen as an enemy, not a traitor. This may have changed then. With Nemtsov, there was a lot of fuss. Putin dropped out of sight, not quite knowing how to handle it. There was a trial of at least the trigger men. And Ramzan Kadyrov survived, but clearly was being kind of covertly identified. I know it sounds kind of strange to say clearly covertly. But no, in terms of it was allowed to get out that basically Kadyrov was responsible. This time, though, there's no fuss. There's no signs of distress on Putin's part at all. And there's no criminal case being opened, let alone any kind of a trial. So no signal of disquiet, except, you know, at, at the fact of the revelations, but, but not about the actual poisoning. It's further evidence that not just that the Kremlin is responsible, but of this new Kremlin approach. Less hybrid authoritarianism, 
and more straightforward authoritarianism. Usually I try and find some silver lining because, you know, my view is that this is not on the whole Mordor, a land of unrelieved darkness and violence. On this particular day, on this particular story, though, I'm afraid I'm all out of silver linings. And so, as my Christmas gift to you, all I can say is, winter is coming. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мной.